house of God this morning. Amen. How many are glad that you're in a church that loves to praise the Lord? So let's give it up for our praise and worship team. Amen. Bless the Lord for them. They're doing an amazing job. Thank you so much. I saw a new brother up there today. What's up, Brother Anthony? Got my brother up there. That's amazing. I know I got some other brothers coming on up. Amen, amen. Open up your Bibles with me to Titus chapter 1. I want to share with you a verse that has set the course for this church. Have you ever heard of the Christian concept of a life verse? It's a thing that's been around for a while. Maybe you've heard of it. A life verse is a verse that, that speaks to the season of your life. Has anybody ever had a life verse? Okay, I'm looking at some of you. A life verse. I go through different seasons of my life, and I feel like God gives me a verse, and it's an anchor. It's a guidance. It's a GPS, a God-positioning system or a God-positioning scripture. And these life verses are helpful in seasons of our life because if we get discouraged, we go right back to that verse and we go, I know God has spoken. I will not be discouraged. I know God has already spoke about this situation. He's got everything in control. Can I hear life verse? Amen. If you haven't done it before, try it. Just look through the scriptures and say, Lord, give me a verse. Give me a word from the scriptures in this season of my life that can be as an anchor, be as a foundation so that I may not get discouraged or waver back and forth because Jesus said these words that I speak and Jesus' words uh, you know, that he's speaking is not just the red letters of the Gospels. Jesus speaks through the Holy Spirit in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. So he said these words that I speak, they are a foundation for you. Titus chapter 1 includes in this passage a life verse for this church. So when my wife and I first started this church, we were praying in our home, two-bedroom apartment on Addison and Pulaski, praying about what God would have us to do. And this verse came to mind as I get into it. I'm not going to tell, what, tell you what it is right now because I want to read the context. Somebody say context. Thank you. I always got to give you context. I just don't want to get right to the, to the cream in the middle of the Oreo. I got to give you the crust of you know, the cookie on the outside here. And I want you to hear this today from my heart to you because the title of the message is going to be this verse. So when we get to it, I'll tell you the title of the message. But what we have to understand is that we have never moved from this. There are things in the scriptures that God will speak to me as a life first, and I will move from them. Not meaning I don't follow that scripture anymore. It's just not for that season. Let me give you an example. There was a time that God really spoke to me through the people of Israel living off manna and that God would provide that manna for me. And this was during the time I was working in the inner city and I would raise a lot of money. I kind of felt like the white Robin Hood. I would go out to all the white suburban churches to work with the inner city uh, people. That's what I felt like. And I, I was like, man, I always need to raise money. So Lord, give me a word. Has anybody here ever had to raise money before? Uh, whether it's in the church or outside the church. So that's what I kind of felt like, and I felt like the Lord was telling me, I got your back, I'm, I'm going to provide the manna. But then the Lord gave me a word later on that said the people of Israel weren't always supposed to live off manna, they were supposed to learn how to get out into the field and then grow some crops. So I came back to the church and I said, listen, I'm done being white Robin Hood. I, I said, I'm done going out here raising all this money so I can have a facility here and a bus here and food giveaway here. I said, it's time some of y'all get a job, start working and start giving. And I got a revelation of that. Come on, somebody say amen. Because I, at that time, I was working in the inner city and it was predominantly African American. And I was like, Bishop Wiley just built a $2.5 million church in your neighborhood. He knows some people around here got money. Are you listening? But here comes the white guy into the inner, inner city, and this is called, and it's serious, it's like the racism of low expectation. Well, I don't expect much from you. You're in the inner city. I'll just keep handing it out. And then as long as I was handing it out, they're like, I'll receive it, Pastor. I'll receive, keep handing it out. But then the Lord told me it's not about manna now. Now it's about planting. Does everybody get how seasons can change, how verses and how we see them can change to seasons of our life? Sometimes you feel like you're walking on water. How many here have ever felt like you're walking on water? But every day it's not supposed to be walking on water. You're supposed to learn how to put a foundation down. Amen? If every day is a storm and crying out to Jesus, call me unto you, Lord. And if every day you're sinking and he's pulling you up and you're just about this, this close to drowning, you know, that's not the way 
way it's supposed to be every day. So I'm trying to build this up because this is unique. I've always wondered, will this change? Will there be a shift in this? But there has not. And so I'm starting to get the understanding that there are some things in life, like in a church, that are going to remain forever. It's not just for a season. It's a part of who you are. And that can also be in these life verses as you study the scriptures and begin to apply scriptures to your, to your life. There's going to be things that God is going to say to you. This is the way it's always going to be. For example, if you want to know the kind of pastor that I'm going to be a leader in this church, go to Jeremiah 23 and see how God dealt with the, the false prophets of that time and then what he would bring out. He said he would bring out a hammer through his word that would break into pieces the false words of that day. That has been a forever word for me over my ministry by God's grace. And that came before I was even saved when my mama was praying and getting words in a prayer journal. Come on, somebody. And so this passage is going to encapsulate the, the, the life verse for this church. And it's so important that we get it because if I was to, to look back at the past years and say it's been a, a, a consistent thing, I would have to make the prediction based on the wisdom of the Lord and say it's probably going to keep being a consistent thing. And so this is going to be the kind of word that you can understand our church by and you can go, okay, I, I think this makes sense. It makes sense to the personality of the leaders. It makes sense to the way the, the church is governed. It makes sense to the way the church is moving and how it makes decisions. Somebody say, make it plain. Okay, I'm getting to it. Let's go. Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Let me give you the context. Paul is speaking to his spiritual son, Titus, which is a book that is named after, who has been left in Crete to keep on the work of the ministry. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, in which now at his appointed season has has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. That's not even the end of the sentence. Are you guys listening? Boy, Paul knew how to preach, didn't he? That right there would take us into a whole nother sermon series. Just, just the overwhelming beauty of the gospel right there, the hope of eternal life, knowledge, God's elect, so many important terms being brought up there that this has been uh, from the beginning of time now coming through the gospel in those times, which was considered to be the beginning of the last days after the spirit was poured out on Pentecost, on Pentecost there. And then God is our Savior, and he's then going to call Jesus our Savior. And we know we don't have two Saviors. We have one God who is our Savior through the Father, Son, and Spirit. Can I hear an amen? So now he says to Titus, my true son in our common faith. It's a spiritual relationship. Grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. There it is. Let's keep on going, please. Help the preacher preach, young man. Thank you. Verse 5, the reason, come on somebody, let's say get to the point. You see, he had all the good stuff to say. Now he says, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order, or in King James, set in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Did someone find a sermon title yet? Has anybody, in the change of my tone, has anybody found the life verse yet? There it is. See, Paul speaking to his spiritual son says, I have left you there to set things in order, as the King James says, to put it in order, as the NIV says, to take what is unfinished and complete it, and the way you're going to do it is by appointing elders in every town, just as I directed you. Now, before I get into this life first and preach a sermon on set it in order, can somebody say set it in order? Before I get to that portion, I just want to be, like I said, a good preacher and build the context so you can see I did not rip it out. It is perfectly in this context of setting things in order because the very next verse in verse 6 now talks about those elders that he was supposed to appoint to set things in order just as he directed as a fellow elder. An elder must be blameless. 
faithful to his wife. How many know most people just got disqualified right there? Even in the church, they got disqualified right there. Sorry, Bishop, you need to sit down for a while. You don't, you don't remain faithful to your one wife. How many know some worship leaders got to sit down? Come on, somebody. See, a lot of people right now getting exposed for not being Christ in their doctrine, uh, being Christian in their doctrine, but they weren't being Christian in their action a long time ago. I want to talk to a lot of these people that are coming out now saying, well, I'm not really a Christian. Well, what were you back then in your lifestyle? Were you looking at pornography? Were you cheating on your wife? Because isn't it convenient now for you to deny Christ? And I know they might say, well, pastor, you know, you, you put us down by saying all that. I'm not trying to put you down. The Bible says when we're to pray, lead us not into temptation. So if you are in temptation, it's because you didn't pray the prayer he told you. Are you all listening to me? If I gave everybody here a credit card with unlimited resources on it, and you came back next week and you're still in debt, is that my fault? No, you didn't apply that credit to what you needed to apply it to. You see, Jesus said that he gave us more than enough. He has made us holy as he is holy, to be holy and to live holy. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. So the moment that I hear people say, well, you know, it's too hard to live this way. Are you putting too much on us? No. The Bible says that you can be blameless, and that's the standard for the thing. Then you might as well come to Jesus and ask him to make you blameless. That means there's no blame against you. Sin has been taken, and if you should sin, it's been covered by the blood of Jesus, and you've openly confessed it to God and man. So anytime as a Christian that I have sinned, I do not remain in the state of condemnation or of guilt or of conviction. I am blameless. Can I hear an amen? Somebody say, I'm blameless. That's how Christ sees us. So we are not sinners daily trying to scrub our hearts to get more and more clean. As a Christian, you are a saint, no longer a sinner. And your, and your participation with the grace of God is to remain blameless. The water by default is good once you get it out the, the faucet. You are now to keep it good, not to put something bad in it. But if something bad gets in it, I believe it can get filtered out. So the state of the Christian is perfection. The state of the Christian is blameless. And the first thing here is an elder needs to be blameless and faithful to his wife. A man whose children believe and is not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. What kind of people did they have back then applying for eldership that they had to say, listen man, you too wild. You are too wild. We can't trust you in the church. But it's still to this day, it's still to this day, people will be wilding out. This is a biblical term now, okay? People will be out there wilding out but then want to have authority in the church. My dad noticed this as an entrepreneur. He said, man, you got some crazy people wanting to take advantage of leadership in the church. They never became leaders in the world. They never became leaders in the community. But now they want to use this church setting to become leaders and get it all out their system. It doesn't work like that. You need to be able to have something to show for leadership out there before you do it in here. You need to be able to show that in your family you've been leading it. Now, of course, we teach leadership here, and this is a great proving ground for it. But in other words, we're not playing make-believe. When we call somebody an elder or deacon here, they're not to go out there and be busted and disgusted. Someone that we've appointed as an elder or deacon here is someone that by God's grace has been trained up and has been living it 24-7 and now gets recognized here. Amen. So they must be blameless, faithful to their wife, a man whose children believe and not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. So that's to the children as well, not only just to the elder, but also to the children. How many know we got to keep children in order? Amen. Now look at what it says. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent. Praise God, we don't need violent leaders in the church. Amen. Not pursuing dishonest gain. How many know that disqualifies people? Amen. I remember one time a pastor came out to his people and he said, man, I've been bad. I've been doing things, you know, I've, I've stolen and I think he had an affair. And then he said, I got to step down. And the people of the church stood up and said, don't go, don't step down. Now, what kind of brainwashed person do you have to be to stand up in the middle of a service when the man is telling you, I have bamboozled you. I have messed with you. I have taken stuff that doesn't belong to me. And somebody stands up, don't go, Pastor. We're going to miss you. We need you. You are brainwashed. You need help. Man, please kick me out the church if I ever do stuff like that. Don't hang on to my leg while I'm getting disciplined by the Lord. Amen. 
No man here is your Savior except the God-man, Jesus Christ. What kind of foolishness do we have in the church that even people can be caught doing dishonest gain, and yet people in the church say, don't go? No, you better go. You better send me back to my pastor, amen? Send me back to counseling. Send me back to the Bible. So this is what we're supposed to be like as elders. Our family's supposed to be in order. We're supposed to be in order. Verse 8, rather he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled. Come on, brother. If I could have one of you guys help me, that would be awesome. Thank you. He must be self-controlled, upright. Somebody say upright. Amen. How many used to hear these words in the culture and society? Well, that's an upright man. When was the last time you even heard that word? So-and-so is upright. You don't even hear that. They're down and out. They're down and dirty. They're on the down low. Everything that was once forbidden is now out in the open. Everybody wants to be bisexual, trisexual. Everybody wants to be something nasty. Come out the closet. Here I am. What in the world? We need to go back to the characteristics of the Bible. This person, this man or woman, they're upright. They live right. You can look up to them. They're not trying to share with you all their dark and naughty secrets and all the sinful things they want you to approve of. No, they're upright. They're self-controlled. They're holy. They're disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. See, this person has to hold on tight to that message because in this world, someone and demons as well as humans will be trying to pull that message out of that person's hand. And the elder must be able to hold on to it tight. Somebody say, hold on tight. They must be able to hold on to that message tightly, firmly, as it has been taught so that they can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. I've had people come to this church and get offended that I rebuke and correct either people by name or movements or various sects or groups or false teachings. My friend, that's part of my job description. Oh, I wish pastor wouldn't do that. Listen, baby, that's on my job description. I had, I had to be ready for this, to refute something. I understand people want to come to church and just hear sweet and nice things. I get it. I've had people draw it out to me, even in Bible college, because we've had arguments you know, about this among pastors. So trust me, I've, I've heard the best of the best, okay? If, if I've heard the person who's sitting in the church on the pew that their way, I, I can tell you I know where they got it from. They got it from the pastors that I'm arguing with. Because I've heard the pastor say it to me like this. Oh, Joe, you know, my people, they go... Go through so many hard things during the week. Life is so tough out there for them. They got problems in their family, problems on their job. Why would I want to take time out of a service meant to encourage them to now refute something like the black Hebrew Israelites or a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon or the politics? Why would I want to take time out of the, the only day I get to see them and get to encourage them and love them? Why would I want to do that? You see, that's how they come back to me. See, the thing is they don't understand that discipline is love according to the Scripture. He says he disciplines those he loves. You see, I love my children, and I want every day to be a good day with them and Jesus in my house. But sometimes i got to refute some people in the neighborhood. Sometimes i got to refute some words that they're hearing over their YouTube. i also got to rebuke and correct some of their own behavior. That's a part of love so that they can be fully equipped, so that they can be right and upright and godly and holy in this world, knowing right from wrong. So a part of my job description is to refute those who oppose it. So when we hear opposition to the gospel message, we don't run and hide. We, like David, we come to them, amen, and oppose and refute what they're talking about, amen? Because here it comes. i got to give you the context. Somebody say, it's just the introduction. We're going back to that passage. I promise you, we're going back to it. But i got to give you the context. Because look at verse 10 now, about the refuting, ending in verse 9. Verse 10 says, for there are many rebellious people. How many rebellious people? Many. Thank you. There are many rebellious people. If there were rebellious people back then, what about now? Many rebellious people. What are they full of? They're full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. And that was the Jewish people at that time that were saying, okay, you can have Jesus as your Messiah, but also keep the, the law of Moses, 613 laws. And the way that you, you, know, you as a Gentile, you're going to be a Christian is the first thing, is we got to take you out back, big 
big tank and we got to circumcise you. Could you imagine doing that as a part of your service? Daryl, I want you to take big tank out back and circumcise him. Not just baptize him, I want you to circumcise him. Sharpening up those knives. Put it out there, boy. Set it out there, son. I mean, you want to talk about an awkward moment, but that's for real. That was for real, man. They were saying that's how we're going to do it because that's how they used to do it back then. If you wanted to convert to Judaism, this is how we know you're serious. Come on, big boy. Seriously, drop your pants, big boy. You won't be a Jew. Let's see how much you won't be a Jew. You won't pay the price for it now. And the Bible even tells a story that when a group of people wanted to become Jews, it hurt them for a long time. And then, and then the brothers went and sacked their city. Remember that? Because they, they messed with their uh, sister. And so it'll take you out for a little bit, right? Walking around all sore and hurt. People on your job asking you what happened. I became a Christian. I became a Christian. And it hurt, but I know it feels good on the inside, but it hurts on the outside right now. I became a Christian. Hallelujah. How many are glad that there's grace and you don't have to be circumcised today? Amen. So, so in the context, in the context of what they're dealing with, we could simply say in our time that people have meaningless talk, deception, and false religion. That's what we would just summarize it as. We would say false religion, false ways of serving God. That was one description of a way to serve God in a false way because you didn't have to do that anymore. Now look at what it says in verse 11. They must be silenced. You got to get them to be quiet. Not by force. This is not talking about an inquisition. And sadly, if you want to know a little bit about church history, it was verses like this that got people to say, we're going to silence you heretics. We're going to cut out your tongues. We're going to pour molten hot steel and, you know, molten uh, iron down your throats. I mean, there is some sadistic, crazy things in the Roman Catholic history. And how many are glad you're a Protestant today? You protested that because they did it to us. They burned us at the stakes as well. We're not silencing people by force. We're silencing them by the things we just learned, by rebuking them, by refuting them, by showing them that they're not going to get away with it in the house of God, excommunicating them, as he speaks about in other places, even in this book. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by the teaching, by teaching things they ought not to teach and for the sake of dishonest gain. So let me just pause here and put this together. We're going to get to that life verse about setting things in order. But why was it so important that Titus know from Paul he needed to set things in order is because the church was at stake. The spiritual souls of people were at stake. And there were false teachers who probably themselves were, de were deceived. Deceived people make the best deceivers. Are you tracking with me? And most people who are deceived don't know they're deceived, right? Right? So he's saying you need to confront them, you need to refute them, and you need to set these things in order, and you need to make sure that you've got elders that are standing alongside of you like the 300. Come on, somebody. This is the church. This is the church of people with you that are ready to get it on for Jesus. That's what he said I want you to do. He said, this is the problem. This is what's going on. Now, verse 12, Paul gets super sassy. He says, one of Crete's own prophets. That's where he's at. He's in Crete. He says, uh, Titus is at. He says, one of Crete's own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. How many know that's crazy if you're saying that about your own people? And sometimes you got to be honest about your own people. We got a lot of different cultures here, but you got to be honest about your own people. When we go out to Belmont and Clark, when we go downtown, when we go to the abortion clinic, I tell everybody out there, you got to forgive my people because they don't know what they do. These white, middle class, liberal, uh, middle aged folks, they will get all up in your face. They will yell. They will holler. I will say this about my own people most of them are liars, they're evil, and they are lazy. Are you listening in Jesus' name? And you got to say something about your own people. you got to be honest with yourself and say, what is the thing going on in my culture? But I just love how Paul calls it out. And then in verse 13, he goes, this saying is true. Yeah, I agree with it. So imagine him saying, yeah, one of their rappers says this about them. And yeah, I agree with them. One of their country star singers says it about them. One of their, you know, poets say it about them. But this is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. 
You see, sometimes people say, oh, you know, we're only supposed to rebuke religious people. We're only supposed to rebuke, you know, like the Sadducees and Pharisees. And I get that when you look at Jesus' overall teaching. The ones that are consistently getting the most abrasive rebukes are the religious people. But you better read the whole Bible. Jesus got rebukes upon rebukes for everybody. You know, I always remind people, Sodom and Gomorrah wasn't a religious city. It was a non-Jewish city. It was a Gentile city. And see how he rebuked them. And look at what he's saying. He's saying, rebuke a whole culture. Rebuke all of them. Set them all in order. Tell them what time it is. Rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. So here we see two types of false teaching that was coming in. They were making up Jewish myths, and then others were just making up things out of their own mind, out of their own heart to benefit themselves. Now look at verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who have a corrupt mind or those who are corrupted do not believe. Nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupt. Look at verse 16. Let's read it together. Let's read verse 16 together. One, two, three. They claim to know God. But by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Somebody say, God have mercy. Amen. Are you ready for the message? Go back up to verse 5, please. Go back up to verse 5. we got to set some things in order. How many believe that? How many believe our culture is messed up right now? And this is the calling upon our church. I want everybody to get this. When we first started the church, God gave me that word in that context. Think about that. So for those of you who are new to the church and are uncomfortable with controversy, you need to find another church that's not going to rebuke anybody. You need to find another church that's going to get along with the culture. You need to go find a church that's going to take pictures with the mayor. Okay? You need to go find that one. Because here we will be controversial to this culture. Here we will refute and rebuke. So this is the big picture. I hope you all get it. It wasn't about COVID. It was about false teaching and people interfering with the church that needed to be rebuked. Do you all get it now? It wasn't about BLM. It was about false teaching coming into the church and those who needed to be rebuked. It wasn't about the Biden and all of these presidents or Hillary Clinton and all. It was about people bringing in false teaching into the church needing to be rebuked. That's why you'll never see me, and I'll be careful, I don't want to say never. That's why, for the most part, you will not see me standing on one soapbox. Out of this time, a lot of people, you know, got their platforms, you know. And so now to keep it going, they just keep, you know, throwing out COVID stuff all the time. No, that's, that, that's not me. I stay on it. I try to stay, stay a current on those things. But that's not me. Others, you know, they came up during this time as a prophetic voice over the Trump presidency, you know. And so they got to keep those books rolling out some way or somehow. They got to keep those words coming out, keep pumping up. See, I'm, I'm not a soap box preacher. In other words, I don't pick one subject, you know, try to step up and get everybody's attention. And then the one that, you know, gets the most attention, I'm going to keep your attention by that issue. I'm not a one issue preacher. The reason why I hate abortion, preach against it and stand on, a, on, on the corners, it's because people need to be rebuked from believing in the spirit of murder. Do you get my point? So that, that's why we care about the underground church. We've been praying for the underground church. This is a bracelet representing it, and we will certainly give you them for free today, especially with Afghanistan. If you want to remember to pray for them in the websites here for the place you can give, our church also gives. But it's not just because we are sympathetic, though I do feel that Christians, we should be you know, people who have sympathy. We have always been focused on the underground church because the communistic, socialistic, Islamic systems need to be re- rebuked, and our people need to be safe. Can I hear an amen? And so now you understand probably a little bit more about why we do what we do. We are following the word that God had set up. The word is is that when things, as we learn from the example here of Paul and Titus, is that when things are out of order, God establishes order by his church, starting with the elders. 
And that's why it's so important in our church for everybody to become a disciple and then to become trained in the things of God. And if you set your heart on being an overseer or an elder, you can do so here. Because we do not pick elders and overseers based on how much money they make, how loyal they are to the church or to the pastor. We appoint elders and deacons based on that criteria and the need to set things in order. And the problem in the church today is that there's no order, is because there's no elders, and now that there's no order in the church, there's no order in the culture. So everybody's got to make up their decision, uh, make up their mind, and come to a decision of how do we fix the problems of the world? How do we fix them? Because we all know they're here, right? There's violence in the streets. There's perversion in our young people's hearts. There's corruption in our businesses and politics. How do we make this problem get better? How do we fix the problem? What's the answer? In other words, how do we set it in order? Everybody has to answer that question. I don't believe we do it through more politicians. I don't believe we do it through more police. I don't believe we do it by more abstinent classes. I don't believe we do it by pumping more money into neighborhoods. I don't believe we do it by more entertainment and in, in politics and those things. I believe we do it by setting the church in order. And when the church is set in order, the church goes out into the culture and sets it in order. That's where I'm staking my heart. And I can see some amens and claps here. Are you guys with me? Is the church of God with me today? Because that's where I believe the answer is. That's where I believe it is. And I will debate that in the open square, uh, you know, the public square, in the, in the public eye. I will debate that anytime. I'll debate that with any sociologist, any person that has studied history. Because I believe that a culture can be no greater than the church. I believe a church is the foundation of a good culture. I can prove that in other cultures and in this culture. And I can show you that whenever we get away from the things of the church, we get away from justice. We get away from purity in our politics. We get away from good business. You look at our tax system and how much it's taxing people. Taxing people is not going to make our problems go away. But you see, people think that's what's going to, what we need. Other things that people keep talking about is handing out everything that they got from those taxes, that giving people more things is going to make everything in our culture go away. No, we see a rebuke to the Cretans. They were lazy. Giving people more free things is lazy. So what we have to do is develop our work ethic, our business ethic, like how we do the economy, all of those things based on the Word of God and based on the church and what God does through good people in business. And when I look at us as a church, I believe we are a microcosm of this culture. I believe we have multiple cultures here, multiple age groups. We have the two genders, amen, male and female. And we have here people with multiple gifts and talents. In other words, if everyone here were to put together their plan to change the world and do it through the scriptures, whether it be through their beautician business or through their engineering or through what they do in their service industry, you would change the world and make a difference and we would never be the same in Chicago. The problem is, is that most of us here are not entrepreneurs. We don't own our businesses. We don't own the things that make the world turn. In other words, financially, the banks. We don't have this kind of, of, of authority. And so what we're left doing is looking up to the wicked who are not upright, who are not self-controlled. They are wiling out, and we are then left to their consequences because of their bad decisions. Are you tracking with me? So where does it start? It starts right here with us. It starts with, do you want to be a disciple that gets set in order in a church with sound doctrine and lives a certain way that can then be of use outside into the world that you live in? How many want to be like that today? Because I want you to see that everybody wants you to be a part of their solution to what they think the problem is. You see, your company right now wants you to be in that mindset of that company and to stay there working for them with that mindset because they believe that's what is best right now. The politicians want you to believe their campaign promises and want to use you and your resources and your young people to further their agenda. But what we see over time is when it's not based in God, when it's not based in God's Word, when we don't make the household of God the way that we want the world to be ran out there, we see that everyone out there uses and abuses us. 
And that's where, that's where we get disenfranchised or get discouraged and now think, well, it doesn't matter anyways. I guess I'll just retreat to the church and do something here to make myself feel better. So out there in the world, they're mean. Out there in the world, they, they don't have time for me as a Christian. They don't pay attention to what I say. But you know what? At the life group, people listen to me. And we begin to reduce our influence. We begin to reduce the power and the dominion that we're supposed to have as Christians to just being in a home Bible study, speaking to the few that are there, being an encouragement. And I thank God that that's something that we get to do as Christians. How many are thankful for small groups, for intimacy, for being able to have influence over someone to encourage them? But what if I told you that wasn't the end, that was actually the means to the end? See, what if I told you that you doing the Bible study or participating in church and being a part of our leadership here wasn't the end of it all. That was actually the beginning of it all because where it ends is out there. The kingdom of God coming from heaven to earth out there in businesses, in families, in communities. And as a church is set in order, you set your community in order. Because if we as a community to decide what's going to be allowed and not allowed there, we can begin to rid our communities of drugs, violence, perversion, and so forth. In other words, if there's nobody for somebody to cheat on, adultery ends or to cheat with. If there's nobody to take a bribe, there's nobody to be bribed. Are you listening? You see how this begins to work? If there's nobody doing the illegal activity of the drugs and of the streets, then there's nobody to war against each other over those neighborhoods and over those drugs and over that money. And so we're looking to others, and I, and I know I've been guilty of this as well, even as a pastor, thinking that so many of these subjects in the world are uh, above my pay grade, as people sometimes say, or outside of my reach. But that's a devil's lie. You are God's answer to a corrupt culture. In other words, everybody get this. If Paul was here today and he saw Chicago and he saw Jason or he saw our brother John or he saw Daryl or, you know, he saw Andre, what do you think he would say for you to fix the problem of Chicago? He would say just like what he said to Titus to fix the problems of Crete. He would say, Jason, I left you here to set in order that mess, those things that are lacking. I left you there to set it in order and appoint leaders. And these are the way the leaders, Jason, should be. This is the way they should be, John, because it's true. Even one of their own says they're all liars. Like what would somebody say about Chicago? When I, just ask somebody when you travel outside on vacation, like when you were in Orlando and you're taking an Uber somewhere, just ask them, what do you all think about Chicago? How many know people will tell you right off the bat what they think about Chicago? Y'all crazy, you're violent, you're corrupt, right? That's what they say about us. And then what would Paul say? He'd be like, yep, that's true for the most part. I agree with it. So what I want you to do is rebuke them, put them in order, start teaching them the truth. Don't let them bring out their false religion. Don't let them bring out ways to convince you to serve God, which are really no other, uh, which are really no other paths. They lead to destruction. And so what I want to do is just encourage you about being a world changer, history maker, and roof breaker. Somebody say, set it in order. Do, with, do a favor with me. Go to Acts chapter 14, verse 23. Because each one of us, 1423 of Acts, please, each one of us is going to have to make up our mind and say, how do we fix our problems? Let's start with some of the problems in marriages. People always say, do you know, Pastor, can you counsel us? Can you counsel? And we do counseling here. But what if I told you that the answer to your marriage problem is found in your discipleship problem? That if your house was set in order with discipleship, your marriage would be set in order with love, care, and concern. That really that our problems in our families is because we don't have right discipleship. In other words, mature disciples make mature marriage partners. People who are loving God will love their spouse. People who are committed to God will be committed to their spouse. Are you getting where I'm coming from there? See, what if I told you that the problem with our children is a church problem? It's a church problem because we're not teaching our children the things of God in church. How many know if we brought the children from this city in here to learn Sunday school and go to church as they once did in all cultures 30, 40, 50 years ago, they would be acting different out there. 
It's because we're not bringing the children to church. The parents aren't coming. That's why we have to go out to Ohio Park and explain to a 14-year-old what his parents never told him. I have to teach the child what his parents never told him. It's the same thing with marriage. It's the same thing in the business. This principle applies to everything. Look at Acts chapter 14, verse 23. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. How can you build a culture? You build a culture through the church. How do you build the church? With leaders. How do you know what leaders are going to be good leaders? By praying and fasting. By teaching them the things of God and then making sure that the Lord approves and that they are ready. Now, has this been done wrong in the past? Absolutely. We, we have to at least give an E for nice effort to the Roman Catholic Church because they said, we're going to take over culture. We'll give it a shot, <laughs> you know. And they did their best for a while, but then it got a little bit off the rails, didn't it? And that's when we talked about the Inquisition because right around from 1000 A.D. to 1500 A.D., the Roman Catholic Church was in cahoots with the empire, uh, emperors and the different empires of that time period that they were existing. And they were imp- and, you know, implementing corporate punishment, beatings, whippings, you know, the death penalty to heretics, criminals, and, and, and alike. In other words, the Roman Catholic Church of the Middle and Dark Ages would give ISIS a run for their money. Let's just be honest, all religious systems without the grace and mercy of God look like ISIS, look like the Taliban. The Crusades, though, were defensive on behalf of the Christians. Yes, it's true, the the Muslims started it, but they had not been behaving well in the places that they were usurping their authority. In other words, there is a wrong way to do this. This is not to be done by force into a culture. When Jesus talked about Christians changing a culture, he gave examples like a little bit of yeast going through the whole batch of dough and then impacting every bit of that batch. How many remember that example? You see, Jesus taught us through the mustard seed that if you have a small seed of faith, you can grow to become the greatest uh, Christian, the, the most effective Christian in the world if you have just that mustard seed of faith. And the same idea is applied to the kingdom of God. That which starts small begins to grow. Matter of fact, can you go uh, to another tab, please? Put Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. This is an important phrase that we need to see that was prophesied about Jesus, that the increase of his government would not end. Somebody say ever-increasing government. Ever-increasing. 9-6, please. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder. So he's carrying the government after his resurrection. And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, talking about our Jesus, Everlasting Father. He's not the Father, but he is a Father, just like I'm not my Father, but I am a Father. Everybody get that? Two persons, both being called Father. Prince of Peace, of the greatness or the expansion of his government and peace, there will be no end. Go to um, King James. I want everybody to see it in King James. It's the goal to the... Um, to the right. It's going to be right up here with the crown on it for me, my brother. I want everybody to see it in King James. I'll put Isaiah 9, 6 up there. Thank you. Because I think greatness doesn't give you the full understanding of that word. Isaiah 9, 6, I believe in, you know, now it's an 8, my brother. Thank you. It's going to talk about the expansion of the government of God. How many believe God's government is expanding right now? The kingdom of God is growing and expanding. And the reason why it's happening is because the church is growing and expanding. Do we got it up there, brother? Isaiah, you misspelled Isaiah. Um, When we look at the church and what it's meant to be, it's not just meant to be a building. It's not just meant to be what we do here on Sunday, one day a week. The church is meant to be a force for the kingdom of God all across the world. Thank you, my brother. Look at verse 7. Of the increase, some may say increase. You see, I like that. I believe it, ex- it, it, it expands on the word greatness. Because, yeah, it's a great government, but what is making it great? How is it great? It's an increasing government. It's an expanding government, and it knows no end. So does the government of God end when you walk into a government of man? 
Come on, everybody get this. I'm going to talk about separation of church and state in just a second, but I'm going to ask you a question. Does the government of God end when you walk into the governor's office? No, the government of God expands to the governor's office, doesn't it? Does the government of God end when you go to talk to your boss? No, it's still there, and it is is expanding there, isn't it? It's increasing there. God wants to increase his government, his rulership, through Jesus Christ in Apple, in Google. Come on, somebody, in Amazon. And if they don't want to be a part of it, he's going to replace them with somebody who does. See, this is where I believe a lot of us who believe in the rapture, in the, you know, before tribulation, we miss a lot of what God can possibly be saying in these scriptures. Let me give you an example here. When I talk to people who don't believe that the rapture happens before tribulation but believe it happens after tribulation, they have something about them that's different than a lot of my pre-tribulation rapture folks. And, and here's what it is. They have a sense of God's government may increase even while I suffer. God's government may increase even though there's loss on this planet. I may be called to plant the flag like they did in the World War II time. I may be called to do that, but I might die on the the shoreline. Somebody might have to pick it up and keep pushing. Because a lot of us in the pre-tribulation rapture mindset, we're like, we're getting out of here. We're getting out of here, man. Come on, beam me up, Jesus. I'm ready to get out of here. And we don't understand that to the increase of his government will come the decrease of our lives. Did you, did you guys get that? And we don't understand that some of us may have to be here for a while before Jesus comes back. And so I would like to say we need the mindset of the post-tribulation rapture, folks, and still have the intimacy belief set mindset of the pre-tribulation. We need the best of both worlds because I can't give up on Google yet. I cannot give up on Amazon yet. I cannot just be sitting here waving a flag saying, God, take me home. William J. Seymour, the, the, the founder of the Azusa Street Revival there in Los Angeles, was one of the most prolific preachers and built his doctrine upon the eminency or the, 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 the moment that God could come back at any moment. He built his teaching on that, saying, hey, get baptized in the Spirit. You never know when Jesus is coming back. And Lester Sumner and all these folks around that time preached the same way. But they also had 100-year prophecies that they believed in. William J. Seymour believed in the 1900s of a hundred-year prophecy that would be fulfilled in our generation of a greater revival than what he saw then. So my question to you is, what part are you going to play in the increase of the government, in the setting things in order? Because you know as well as I do, when you look at those dishes that are out of order and you go, man, I'll do that some other time. It doesn't get done, does it? How about this? When you're in a hotel, do you pick up after yourself? That'll show if you're really a neat person. Somebody else going to pick it up. Somebody else going to do it. Leave those dishes there. Leave these things there. We, when we get lazy like that, what she said, that's what they were. When we get lazy like that, we don't want to put in the work. And right now, I just want to say it. What, what if we are here for another 100 years? What if your children need to be in this culture another 100 years? What are you going to hand to them? in the job market? What are you going to hand to them in the church world? That's why I'm putting up there, by God's grace, 100,000, 50 churches in the city, 500 around the world. Because should the Lord tarry, I want the increase of the government of God to be spread all across this city. As I said before, come on, somebody. I want our campuses to give the Roman Catholic Church a run for their money. I want them to hand over their keys and say, well, we tried. Yes, you did. Now hand it over to the Pentecostals. Amen. You did, you tried, you tried your thing over here, but now it's our turn in Jesus' name. And sadly, so many of them becoming dilapidated, shut down. They don't have enough priests. And they tried, though, didn't they? They put them on these corners, corner churches. They had their gyms. They had their schools. What if we're left here for another 100 years? What do, we, what do you think we have to do, saints? we got to have banks. we got to start being able to finance the visions that you have so you can start those businesses. we got to start having the ability to hire our, each other and to build up culture. We need to have our educational systems again. 
We need to be able to have the schools that represent our doctrine because we're not going to take it by force. And listen to me, I am not saying that we're going to do any of this by force. I just want to make sure everybody gets this. On the day Jesus Christ comes, that's when the government is fully established. Nobody can stop it. That train's a coming. Amen? Choo-choo. There comes Jesus. You can say, oh me, oh my, but it's better you say amen, so be it, and get with it. Okay? Because you will get run over by the Jesus train. But right now, we don't got to run them over. We don't, we don't have to force Google to be Christian. We don't have to force Apple to be Christian. But you know what we can do? We can have people who work for them, outperform them, and become in leadership and set it in order. And then if they don't want it, we can start the next search engine that outperforms them and becomes the next Google. Do you get it? You see, that's how you do it. And it's the same thing with the police department. It's the same thing with the, the people who hold this thing together, and, you know, as they think it does, uh, the, you know, the law and all of these things. We continue to infiltrate these places with our worldview until either those places change or we replace them. Can I hear an amen to that? That's how we do it. And God knows that it starts here in the church. Let me just show it to you again. Can I give you another passage here? Go to Acts 15, verse 2, please. Do you remember that these people wanted to circumcise? Remember that? We heard in Crete they wanted to circumcise. you all remember that? You were here for the beginning of the message? Okay, so I'll make sure I'm talking to the same people. Amen. You were here for that. And it talks about they wanted to circumcise. Did you know that the elders had already made their decision about that? Somebody say elders. Amen. Did you know that that decision was already made? You see, these folks were out of order. They didn't want to listen to the Jerusalem council. I don't have time to read the whole thing, but if you have time, take a look at it or to be reminded of it here. Acts 15 shows that this controversy that these Jewish people were bringing up at the time to circumcise the Gentiles needed to be dealt with. So they called a council of the elders. Oh, to God that we would call council of the elders again. Oh, to God that the churches of this city would truly have authority and do councils again. Not these fake wannabe prayer meetings. Nothing wrong. Please don't hear me on that. But I'm so tired of these, these lukewarm prayer meetings. They have no authority. They have no faith. They have no discipline. And so just to let you know where I stand on those things, if you don't see me at them, as I've said to the pastors in charge, before I come and pray with you, I want to get to know you. Will you sit down with me and three or four of your, your, your co-laborers so I can ask you some questions? They didn't even want to do that. So what do they want? Let me just pause here. I'm going to get on the soapboxes for a minute, okay? But, but what do they want? They want you for their agenda, and they just want to go through me to get you. That's all they want. They don't care about Joe. They don't care what word Joe has been given, what authority I've been given. They don't care about any of those things. Just, Pastor, sign off on this so we can recruit your people to fill up our building for this thing to make us look good like we tried. And I told him, I said, I don't operate like that. If you're an elder and you guys are over this, I want to meet with you. I want to understand you. If it's that important to you to email me, if it's that important to send a flyer through one of our people, then why can't you meet with me? Are you such a busy little bee buzzing around? Such a busy little bee you can't meet with anybody. No, you don't think it's important. But you see, in the Bible days, you had to do that. If you didn't meet with the elders and get the right hand of fellowship, you were already considered a heretic. I wish I could keep you here because heretics weren't just those causing problems with their false doctrines. It was also those who were divisive. And those who wanted to cause divisions and be schismatics and sectarian in their Christian belief were instantly rebuked and reproved because Jesus said, this is how you will know, the world will know that you belong to me is your love for one another. Father, he also prayed that they may be one as we are one. And so if you look here in Acts chapter 15, verse 2, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute with those Judaizers. So he had been dealing with them for a while and debate with them. And it's okay to be in sharp dispute and debate when things matter. How many men know this matters? Whether you're going to get circumcised or not. Can I hear an amen from the men? So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem and to see who? The apostles and... Come on, read it like you know what you're reading there. Come on, they went to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders. 
And they made a decision. I got all the verses here. You can go through it on your time. But the elders made a decision that you don't have to be circumcised, that faith in Christ is sufficient. And I want to ask you a question today. Do you want to be a part of the movers and shakers of this culture? If you do, get involved in what God is doing in this church because what may look small on the outside here is on the inside big in the kingdom of God because God is setting things in order. He can entrust us with more as we're faithful. And so that's why I believe as we look at all the issues that we face in the culture, you can trust that Metro Praise is going to do the right thing is because we're going to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit via the elders. And the elders are here working on behalf of you and the kingdom of God, and they are welcoming you into what God is doing. Not just to build it up here. Not to build up a Disney world. I want to be very clear about this. As Vinny comes, please. I look at too many churches as Disney world. Just a whole lot of fantasy. Y'all just playing make-believe on Sundays. We are not here to play fantasy make-believe. I know it's fun to come to church. I know we love to clap our hands and sing. But this is not just a sing-song place. This is a place of government. This is a place of authority. This is a place, I'm being honest with you, this is a place where mayors will learn how to become mayors. This is a place where governors will learn how to become governors. This is a place where moms and dads get their marriages in order and children aren't broken sexually so they don't have all the brokenness. Statistics are still on our side. LGBTQ, they're trying to keep changing these statistics, but the more studies they do, keep proving what we're proving, Majority of the LGBTQ still from broken families, still from sexual abuse. Why do you think right now in our culture we have the highest brokenness, highest children rate being brought up without moms and dads in home, highest it's ever been in the American culture? Now they say upwards of more than half growing up without their mom and dad in the home. Why do you think in this culture that it's that high of brokenness that we now see the highest sexual brokenness? Is that just a coincidence? No. Broken families lead to broken children. Right now, you are the answer in Jesus' name. Set it in order. Find your place and begin to set it in order. So many times we look at these scriptures, even myself, we look at them and we think, I don't know how much I can impact the culture this way. But I go back and I say, Lord, if you did it for them, you can do it for us. And that's why this has been like a life verse for me. I just want to give you a couple closing examples. You know, when we first started the church, this word was given to us, you know, set things in order. And as we were in our home Bible study, there was a couple that had been former homosexuals but now lived together as roommates and wanted to be a part of our church. And it was cool. It was a good testimony. You know, they used to be this way. Now they're this way, and they're being used by God to, you know, to help others. And, and they were just great people. They, they gave a lot to the church. They truly loved Jesus. They understood what they did was sin. But then over time, one of them just started to stumble and just started to have issues. I don't know if it was with his former lover, roommate in the house, or if it was outside, but they just be, that this person rather just began to have issues. And I remember him confessing it to me and me saying, I've got to sit you down from helping in these ways. You could still help in these other ways, but not in these ways. It's something when I say to somebody, you can't teach or do this, that will offend them. But when I say, uh, you don't, no, no uh, excuse me, when I say, you can't teach, you can't do all of this, they, they seem to take it all personal. But when I say, go do street evangelism, they now get offended and say, well, that's not good enough for me. How is it that you want to teach, but you don't want to do evangelism? How is it you take that even as a downgrade in one sense? Isn't that the greatest thing? Oh, man, I just don't want to be on the evangelism team. He's like, well, what do I do? What do I do? Well, go on the evangelism team. No, I want, I want to keep being in front of everybody. No, that shows your heart's not right. So his friend, who had not confessed any things, so I don't know the full story if it was between him and that person or just somebody else, I don't know. But the friend basically came to me, and he was the money guy. He was the one that owned the house they lived in. He was the one that gave us a van, helped build the storage. I mean, he was the money guy. He said, if you do so and if you if you do such and such this way, then I'm leaving too. 
Now, that doesn't sound like that big of a deal. That sounds like a pretty easy thing for a pastor to choose between, right? Here you have somebody that's in some type of homosexual lifestyle, sinning, getting offended, and you're basically saying you got to stop or you got to get out. And now somebody says, hey, if you put them out, I'm going with them. Now after 20 plus years of pastoring, hey, no thing. We ready to make that decision. Amen. There's the door. Did you forget where it was at? Why are we even talking about this? Somebody passed the mayonnaise. Let's keep eating. Let's keep hanging out. What are we doing? But I mean, let's just be honest. You have 10 people and you have one of them probably at that time making up half the budget. And now they're saying, I'm out of here if you make this decision this way. And so we set it in order. And we said, this is our decision. And that person left. And I remember watching the budget, you know, 10 people. And half the budget's one, you know, one couple, you know, two people. Go right down like that immediately. Next week, felt it. Next week after that, felt it. You all tracking with me? But I went back to that verse, and I said, God's setting it in order. They used to go to such and such a church where they didn't care about how they lived. As long as those checks were clearing, they didn't get up in their business. So I said, Lord, I know if you brought them here, it was for a reason. They got set in order. So I wanted in one sense to start giving people a sticker on the way out. You were set in order. You know? Because at least I did one thing for you. I set you in order. You may not have wanted it. It may not look good for our church right now. But one thing was accomplished in this relationship. You were set in order. And so those things became a little bit easier to deal with the, you know, the sin. But as I was a pastor, I started dealing with other issues that, once again, were challenging. For example, we uh, put up a big sign. Some of you remember this, a big sign. I mean, literally like how our sign is now, Metro Praise International. We put out an entire sign that we made that said, if you are looking to start a church or need help in joining a church, uh, a church movement to plant your church, we will help you. Because I, once we finally secured this building, I was like, Lord, I'm going to give this away to everybody and anybody. I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. Anyone who wants to start a church, I'm going to help them because nobody would help me. Okay? So some people remember, this is way back in the day. This was another crazy thing. You know, like a pastor's learning. Yes. So I just put that out. And somebody contacted me. You know, and they were a Hispanic church, you know, about 10, 12 people small. And they said, man, can, uh, can we use your building? I'm like, come on, what does it cost? Nothing. I just want to check your doctrine. I want to make sure you're holy. I want to do accountability with you. And everything checked off. We did have our due diligence. We had them sign some things that they weren't going to be naughty and nasty and all that. And so, boom, they started using our, Sp- our church and started having a Spanish church here. And then people in our church began to hear about it and said, man, pastor, can I, can I start visiting the Spanish church? I'm like, absolutely, go ahead and join. How many know where this is going? <laughs> well, after a certain point, the woman, the wife of the pastor, got offended with us and had major issues. I don't remember them. Sue Ellen can tell you. you know, if you know Sue Ellen, you'll get this. Because if you're mad at Sue Ellen, I know you're not right. Sue Ellen's one of the nicest people I've ever met in my life. So this woman had a, had a, had a problem with Sue Ellen. She's messing with me. So, th- so these two hens of the chicken house are going at it. And I remember the pastor saying to me, well, you know what? Let's just settle it this way, and my wife will be okay. Let's settle it this way, and my wife will be fine, and we'll move on. And I said, no, can't do it that way. No, we got to do it this way. And your wife's going to come into a meeting with Sue Ellen, and we're going to settle it like this. Well, that very next Sunday, his wife didn't show up, and he said, Pastor, this is my last Sunday here. Yeah. And at that point, I had a choice to make because out of that church we had, 15, 20 people, five to six of our Spanish people were now joining that. I had a choice now to make. Am I going to try to rip those people out of that church? to come back over to ours or am I going to say to make their own decision so I stood up in front of that church and I said here's here's what it is we've had a disagreement and we're now letting this church go and I'm asking those of you who have made this your church to stay but guess what they didn't want to stay they left I lost people out of that church because I was willing to put that man's wife in order when he wasn't and that church eventually closed down But how many know I had to stand my ground even though the next week we had less people? You see, 
When we set things in order, you're going to pay a price for it. And in the time, in the moment, it's going to look like you're losing instead of gaining. It's like Jesus at the feeding of, you know, the thousands. They're all coming for the food. And then one time he says, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And now they start running away. And Jesus looks to his disciples and says, are you going to leave as well? See, what was Jesus doing? Jesus was setting things in order. And we've got to learn to have that confidence in what we're doing in our lives. To begin to cut things off or to walk away and to not compromise. To be Daniels, even if we're in Babylon, to be Daniels and not compromise. To be Josephs in Egypt. Because we believe that what God is going to do in us and through us is better than what we're going to suffer now or go through now. Can I hear an amen? And so I want to encourage you to set it in order. I wish I could tell one last, let me just tell this quickly. One last example. We started a church overseas through a person who reached out to us in India. And all of these people from these other countries started hearing about it in Nepal, in Pakistan, Nigeria. And at one time, we had over 200 churches that were using our materials, using our names. We were flying out over there. We were developing great relationships. But I couldn't make it one time, and so I sent one of our pastors over there. And when they went over there, they said, Joe... You know, I don't think they're really with Metro Praise because they don't know what we're doing. I think they're kind of putting a, you know, a face on for you. Almost as if when Metro Praise comes, they put out the Metro Praise banner. Then after Metro Praise leaves, they put out the First Baptist banner. You know, like they're just, they're desperate out there. You know, anybody who's going to help us will be you. So they've got like five names of their churches that they put out. When the Baptist folks come, we're First Baptist. When Metro Praise come, you all get it. And I had a decision to make with them. And I had to set them in order. And the long story short is we lost every single one of them. Every single. Can you imagine that? Here I was at the apostles who's who gathering. And I'm like, man, we got 200 churches. How many churches do you have? Now imagine going back. Because I know these sisters know the kind of gatherings. I can, I'm talking about how it can go there. Imagine me going to that next apostles gathering. And they go, how many churches you got? None. Well, one in Chicago, just imagine the explanations I had to give people. You had 200 before, bro. What happened? Well, I had to set it in order. Do you see how that became a life verse for our church? I had to set India in order. India didn't really want to be a metro press. I, I, I gave Nepal a choice. And Nepal didn't want it. Beautiful people, beautiful country. Love, love to go visit them again. But they didn't want what we were doing in Jesus' name. And so you've got to set things in order, hold to your convictions, and watch what God will do. Amen? Let's stand up. Give it up for the Lord. Come on. Amen. Come on. Let's give it up for Jesus. Say, use me, Lord, to set it in order.